Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Thoracic Group of Australasia's podcast series. I am Professor Nick Pavlakis, and I'm a medical oncologist and also board chair of TOGA and an investigator in a national multi-centre study and observational cohort study, the ASPIRATION study that is evaluating comprehensive genomic profiling. And that's going to be the topic of our podcast tonight. It's based around the premise that over the years, we've learned that targeted therapy against specific genetic mutations or alterations in patients' tumors has substantially improved outcomes for patients with many different cancers, particularly lung cancer, but also in other tumor types such as melanoma, breast cancer, and others. We're going to talk about some technology which we call next-generation sequencing, which is evaluates tumors and which is a method of evaluating comprehensively the genomic profile of the tumor to detect genomic aberrations in the tumor that may be able to be matched towards specific targeted therapies. And the premise is that these genomic profiles or identities may be the, the major switch upon which the cancer depends to grow. And therefore, we could target that and get a bigger outcome without the need for conventional older treatments such as chemotherapy. In many circumstances, such targeted therapies are actually more effective than their chemotherapy counterparts have been in the past. Now, there are several different methods and commercial uh, panels available and with different turnaround times and some issues with logistics in terms of obtaining tissue and getting results and then understanding those results in the clinic. In this podcast, we have the privilege of having as my counterpart in this discussion, Professor Stephen Fox, who is the head of molecular pathology and director of pathology at the Peter McCallum Cancer Institute, as well as professorial fellow in the Department of Pathology, the University of Melbourne. He'll join me in this conversation and we'll be discussing questions related to comprehensive genomic profiling in the clinic. I'd like to thank Roche for sponsoring the podcast. So Stephen, welcome to tonight's podcast. And it's always a pleasure being able to speak with you around this topic. I might just start with a very basic question to you. How much are you now getting increasingly involved with this concept of comprehensive genomic profiling routine practice, having moved from standard pathology to molecular pathology? Well, firstly, a hello to you. <laughs> good to see you again, even if it is, uh, as they say, virtually, as opposed to our usual face-to-face. -face. I mean, we're seeing an increasing quantity and breadth of genomic profiling, as you mentioned, not only in lung, but a, in, a, in a quite a number of other tumor types. Lung is obviously particularly interesting because of the complexity of the different types of changes that we want to identify. And the, the comprehensive genomic approach that, that you mentioned uh, covers all of this. The, the issue comes is it's a very difficult technology and it's expensive. And the expense is probably the, the bottleneck of getting it rolled out more widely in the Australian context because of the way that we are currently reimbursed for if you like, some of the more minor changes that we pick up for some of the more standard and targeted therapies that we do. You know, it's, it's, it's certainly the evolution of genomic profiling gets started back in 2003 and four with EGFR. And historically, we've been wedded to this concept of, as we've learned about a new profile, we'll add that on. What is the, the material that you require 
to do a single test such as EGFR? And I guess what's the trade-off against a comprehensive one? Well, I can take you through the Australian context. So you'll know it very well, but some of your listeners might not know some of the pathology restrictions that we have. So we, we are funded to do three main tests now. So we can do EGFR. And as you mentioned, we used to do that just doing a, sing, a Sanger approach, which is basic sequencing. And that was a single test and a single patient. And then, as you rightly mentioned, other targets became available. So ALK was the next one off the block. And unfortunately, the, the ruling mean that we can only test lung cancers that are EGFR negative before we can do ALK testing. And even when we do ALK testing, uh, we have to do a triage with immunohistochemistry first before we're allowed to then go on to the if you like, the test that we're allowed to, to use and we, uh, we are funded for, and that is FISH. And then only more recently, I believe it was November last year, ROS1 came along. So again, we have to wait, be an EGFR negative and an ALK negative before we can do ROS testing. And again, we triage with immunohistochemistry and then FISH as the prescribed methodology. Now, what a comprehensive genomic approach does enables you to basically test all of those in one single test and also acquire other information that may be useful to medical oncologists like yourself, particularly in the clinical trials context. And the other advantage is you don't, you don't get attrition. We don't use tissue up doing these other tests. We do a, a one test approach. And so, as you know, lung cancers can be very tricky to acquire tissue for. And so, CGP approach or a panel approach enables you to just use the minimal tissue that might be available and still get a good result. Thanks for highlighting that issue in the Australian context, Stephen. Um, in the US, they've actually done some studies. Of course, that's a different model altogether than Australia. And they have demonstrated several studies that, A, the utility of the CGP, the comprehensive genomic profiling in finding additional information that's of clinical consequence so that it changes therapy and be that it actually is cost effective but only in the obviously that's in the American system which is very much funded in private healthcare. what do we need to do in Australia you said it was expensive how do we bring that cost down is it a catch-22 where we have to do more to to make it more more uh, affordable you've hit some of the nails on the head yes I mean <laughs> volume is everything one of the issues we have in Australia was we have a, a distributed model, if you like. So we don't have huge central laboratories. Most laboratories can do low-key molecular testing. CGP is slightly different. You do need another level of expertise. And then, of course, with regard to getting the reagents, the, the more that you buy, the cheaper they become. But I think you know the environment is changing slightly, and some of the some of the test prices are coming to be more achievable, if you like. So instead of going for a very broad comprehensive approach, an example there would be Foundation Medicine or Illumina TSO 500. There are smaller panels becoming available, which are not quite so expensive that may be become achievable to replace some of our sequential testing. So you're probably looking at the almost the sub $1,000 mark. And I think once you get down to that level, because of the you know, the time taken to send tissue around, which also incurs an MBS fee, the fact that, you know, each individual test does get reimbursed, you know, three, $400. It's not long before you get up to that $1,000 mark and, and you'll be able to cover your, your test cost, if you like. So I'm hopeful over the next few years that, you know, there'll be further moves towards bringing the cost down. 
and uh, with volume we'll be able to perform these sorts of smaller panels but comprehensive enough certainly for lung cancer and let's say colorectal cancer and also melanoma which are the three big solid tumors that we do regular testing for thank you Stephen. can i ask you can everyone can every laboratory do this test or is this something that really should be restricted to laboratories of i guess technical expertise but also the expertise to review the results can you lead us through what it would what it takes in your laboratory to do this so we have we have quite tight what we call accreditation requirements so certainly for mbs reimburse you, you need to have the accreditation and your scope of practice to be able to perform the test so not every lab will be able to do every test unless they have that within their scope of practice and are accredited for it. So in, in molecular testing, certainly in cancer genetics, there are different levels of, if you like, governance. So there are modules within our Royal College of Pathologists Australasia that enable you to do sort of simple type testing, and that is basically small panels. And I think a lot of molecular labs can do that uh, as long as you've had the appropriate training. And then you've got some of the bigger panels, including transcriptome and whole genome. And that's another module that you have to do in order to become, if you like, accredited and encompassed in your scope of supervision as a, as a pathologist. And so if you're associated with a lab that has what is known as module one, which is the simple panel, the small panel, um, or module three, which is the, the larger panel, then, of course, if, as long as you validate the assay in, in your laboratory and you have skilled scientific staff to perform the assay on the wet lab side and all the other wraparounds about bioinformatics and pipelines and stuff, then you can do the assay. So if you're offering a, a, an accredited assay for, that you're claiming reimbursement on, you must have that scope of supervision. Not every lab has every scope of practice. So just learn to know what your lab has and what they offer. So just because it says something on the label doesn't mean to say that's what you're going to get. An example would be, even if you have a comprehensive genomic test like foundation medicine, it will not pick up all ALK fusions, for example, because it's not designed to do that. So you just need to be aware of the, some of the advantages and disadvantages of any individual assay. Thank you. Yes. So to our uh, listeners, of course, one of the main driving factors for seeking and pursuing this technology and trying to expand it broader is the knowledge that we have a therapy to actually offer the patients once we have that information. When CGP first came along, one of the, and, and still, I think, one of the challenges is knowing what to do with some of the information. Tell us a little bit about the next step, I guess, when you get the results with the molecular tumor board, just so listener can understand, it's not just about doing the test, but it's also understanding the result and, and the implication. Sure, I can take you through what we do at Peter Max. So generally, our, if you like, our simple low complexity testing, we don't run through a molecular tumor board because there's just don't have the volume. And, the, and most of our clinicians and our referral base understand those more conventional test results. For CGP, when you're looking, you know, several hundred genes, all types of classes of genomic change, and that includes things like copy number or fusions or that sort of stuff that may have therapeutic implications. We have a, a couple of meetings. So we have a, a pathology in-house meeting where we have what are known our curators who look at the variants in the context of the tumor and assess whether they are thought to be pathogenic or not, and then potentially what 
clinical trials might be associated with those particular changes. And then we also have pathology input as well from anatomical pathologists and sometimes molecular pathologists to make sure that the context of that change makes sense. And sometimes we pick up quite you know, anomalies that make us question the diagnosis on occasion. And then we can use other components of the CGP result to confirm or refute those hypotheses. An example would be, there may be a, a lung cancer that we've been sent, for example, and then it's got, doesn't have your, let's say an EGFR mutation, but it has an unusual mutation that's associated with melanoma, let's say. So it might have a BRAF, although lung can also have BRAF, but it also has a, a signature. So it might have a UV signature that we can pick up. This is our certain base changes. So it has a UV signature. The suggestion is it's certainly not going to be a, a lung cancer, which you'd anticipate to have a smoking signature if it's smoking-associated lung cancer. And then from that curator's meeting, if you like, we then take those cases through to the molecular tumor board, which actually at the moment we call a variant meeting, where we have uh, medical oncologists, we have, again, our representatives from pathology, the curators, and we have our pathologists, but we also have quite a large establishment of scientists, and, and they come from both research, clinical and research, if you like, fundamental basic, some of them who have an in-depth knowledge of particular pathways, which sometimes are very helpful. We also have input from our family cancer people, and then we, we also have representation from radiation oncology and sometimes surgery. So we have a proper MDT representation from across the specialties. And then the case is presented, the genomic findings are discussed, and then we come up with a potential recommendation for those patients. So it's quite a complex process and a lot of expertise and a lot of time is spent on individual cases to make sure that we get the optimal treatment strategy for an individual patient. Yes, thank you. And having recently participated and sat in on some of those meetings, certainly one of the things you you do appreciate the level of contribution that everyone puts into that and the outcome that it's not a case of a simple report, as you've highlighted. There's a lot of effort put in, but certainly those clinicians who do seek and ask for these tests certainly value that. And uh, for the listener, of course, some of the recommendations may be towards treatments that are funded and accessible. And sometimes the recommendations are towards trials that are currently out there at the moment. And this is certainly a, a rapidly evolving area and one that without spending the time doing these assays we wouldn't be learning what we're learning towards having the targets for future drugs so there is certainly a a spiraling effect in terms of the impact ultimately i think on the patient so as a as i sit on the other side of the fence too being participating with some of the meetings, but also just as a simple clinician referrer. And I just speaking on behalf of my colleagues, Stephen, just to say thanks to you and your colleagues across, not just within the Peter Mac, but across the country for setting the scene for us to be able to do these tests for our patients. Just for the audience online, I guess I'll just put a plug in for the TOGA group. You're obviously a very strong part of this study that we're doing, aspiration trial which is a trial that's evaluating the application of CGP or comprehensive genomic profiling upfront in all newly diagnosed lung cancer patients. And we hope we'll gather the information required to demonstrate that it can be done, that the results can be provided swiftly and with meaning such that they can impact on patient treatments and that ultimately we can do it in a way that's affordable. 
I guess you've explored a number of platforms. Uh, do you have any, I uh, guess, insights from the various platforms as to whether we, we're on the right path at the moment? Is there anything that your experience or learning so far has led you to think, do we need to change anything going forward or are, we, or are we moving in the right direction as we are at the moment? I think generally we're moving the, the right direction, but the, the more I'm involved in this, <laughs> in this, the, the harder it gets. So, you know, when we started on this journey, I think it was in 2012, we had, you know, a, a small 48 gene panel and we thought this was the B's and E's and I didn't truly understand the complexity of some of the classes of genetic changes or genomic changes that we have to identify, some of the shortcomings of each individual assay, which, you know, they're not, although they're comprehensive, then they're, they're not absolutely assured in every, every circumstance. So you have to understand the performance characteristics of the different assays. I think they're going to get increasingly complex. So we're, we're extracting information. For example, many of your listeners would have heard of tumor mutational burden. So we're, we're beginning to suck out signatures that will be helpful for other therapeutic strategies, for example, immunotherapies. But if your tumor doesn't have enough mutations, you're not going to get that information. So again, the type of tumor that you're testing and what you're looking for is so dependent on the differences that you're putting in. So if you haven't got the right tumor cellularity, if you haven't got the right tumor area, if your fixation is off, there's so many variables that make the result so profoundly different that you have to be aware of quite a lot as you go. Now we're learning more and more about what we need to put in, but also what comes off the sequencer is, is also terribly important as well. So we are spending more and more time on the what we call the bioinformatics side of it, the analysis side of it, which again is becoming increasingly complex. How to extract this information, how to make sure the information is correct, how to make sure that we have appropriate what we call coverage over all the genetic and genomic regions we're interested in, make sure that we can have appropriate controls. It, it's increasingly complex. And then at the moment, we're mostly doing DNA, but obviously we've now started to do RNA as well. So, and then potentially we, in some tumor types, we're starting to look at methylation. So we're going to have to bring all of this information together in a, a single report for you guys and then be able to interpret that. I think we need decision support tools that, you know, may be based on, you know, the, the artificial intelligence or machine learning, which is very much the flavor of the month. And, you know, how do we use some of these tools to, to bring this information and get clinical context that's some of the problems that we have. So it's, as we do more, I find it harder and harder. <laughs> a little knowledge, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing for me. <laughs> it's a strong words of wisdom there. The more we know, the less we know, and the more we yeah, need it's, to know. it's like Donald Rumsfeld's, you know, known knowns, unknown knowns, and all that sort of stuff. It's it's never ending. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I just want to say for our listeners, whilst. Uh, we are speaking about a technology that we hope will enable us to give tailored therapies. For many patients, we won't find a target. And I think it's important for you to know that we do have very effective modern treatment with immunotherapy combined with chemotherapy. And in some patients, while we haven't got a target to hit with a specific targeted drug, some of the information we gain from these tools may actually lend us to know what partner treatments we should give to get a better outcome with some of our existing tools like chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and immunotherapy, and where we might learn about prediction, but we might learn about 
prognosis, which is equally important. Just as a final wrap up, liquid biopsies, doing this on blood. So a few words on that, perhaps, Steve. Where are we up to with that? And what would, what would we say, for I guess, for our patients who are online listening to this uh, with liquid biopsies? Uh, I think it's a it's a it's a really exciting area, and you know I thought that you know the tissue testing was hard. The the CT DNA, the circulating tumor DNA testing, is another log harder, I suspect, because you're looking for such small quantities of circulating tumor DNA, and you're trying to extract all that information from this very small amount of, of CT DNA. And it's you know is it real or you know, is it a false positive? However, I think in some contexts, particularly in lung, there are robust assays that can be used every day now. An example was, was the T790M program that we ran for uh, osimertinib. So that's a very good test and is actually, it's been suggested by, you know, the, the Australian uh, group that it's actually ready for prime time. So the algorithm would be, you know, if you've got progression on, on TKI and, and you're looking for a, a T790M, which is the most common resistance mu mutation, then if you do the assay and it's positive, you can believe that assay. However, if you're negative, you might want to then default to a tissue biopsy, maybe difficult to get, of course, because if you have a negative result for ctDNA, you're never quite sure whether it's because there isn't any ctDNA in the circulation or you have got ctDNA and you just haven't got the mutation. So you've got that, that quandary, although you can use truncal mutations, the original mutation to make sure that you have got tumor DNA in the circulation. But I think our technologies are getting better and better and that we'll be able to do, if you like, and indeed there are some tests available, comprehensive genomic profiling on, on circulating on the liquid biopsy, if you like. So I think there's great promise there. And again, the other problem is, of course, if you thought tissue biopsies were expensive, again, it's even more expensive doing the circulating tumor DNA stuff, but it does save the biopsy and it saves the patient a lot of hassle, of course. And so on a health economic terms, it actually might be quite good. Yes, thank you, Stephen. I guess you've mentioned it earlier with volume. As long as the effort's put in, the better, the more we do, the more cost effective it may become over time. I guess I might start to wrap it up there. I think we've had a great conversation about the technology. I, I hope that the listeners realise that it is complex, that there's an enormous effort put in, that ultimately we are doing this because we want to make changes to patient care. We hope that we can convince government that it's worthwhile with doing appropriate research. And for those that are out there, if you're aware, we are running a clinical trial nationally, the ASPIRATION trial to evaluate this in newly diagnosed patients. But we're also, a number of clinical trials are being run nationally in many other situations. And speak to your medical oncologists if you'd like to pursue this and if it's appropriate for you. And uh, I'd like to personally thank Stephen for not just attending this podcast tonight, but I guess for being in partnership together over the years in uh, trying to move the field forward in lung cancer. Yeah, it's, it's always fun, Nick. <laughs> I, I suppose I also like to sort of acknowledge and really thank everybody in the Peter Mac labs. You know, they do a fantastic job. It's very much a team approach. We also love our clinicians because they're so helpful in interpreting, you know, some of the more difficult changes. So as again, it's, it's a very much a team approach. Thank you. Well, on that note, we might say uh, goodbye and good night. We hope that this podcast has been uh, interesting and informative. We hope that it's something that might help 
you or your relative or someone you know if you're seeking this. And we hope that you're able to participate in some of our research efforts to demonstrate the information we need to make this available to all in the future. Thank you very much. And thank you again to Roche for their sponsorship of this podcast.